Welcome back, listeners, for another episode of the Georgia Music Teachers Association podcast. My name is Bebe Lin, Vice President of Membership with GMTA. We're back for another great conversation with a Georgia music teacher today that I think you'll all enjoy. Before we get to that conversation, I just want to encourage you to share the podcast with your friends and colleagues who might be interested. And if you can take a moment to leave a review, I would really appreciate it. And now, without further delay, here is today's conversation. We are joined by Anne-Marie Cherry. Hello, Anne-Marie. Hello. Thank you so much for making the time to talk to me. We'll start with a background question, which is, tell me about what you do and how you got to where you are today. Great. Yeah. So I'm the assistant professor of horn at the Schwab School of Music, which is in Columbus, Georgia at Columbus State University. This is my third year being here. Uh, Before that, I was teaching at UT Austin as an adjunct and kind of out on the West Coast. So I'm originally from Austin, Texas, one of the few people that actually is from there. Lots of people move there now. Um, And I went to school at UT Austin for my undergrad, my master's. Then I moved out to the West Coast and did a doctorate at the University of Southern California, was a freelancer out there for a bit, did some one-year contracts with orchestras, uh, and knew that teaching was was one of my passions, and so kind of started eyeing my way back into teaching um, in addition to playing. So I went back to UT and had a wonderful time. It's, it's a really rare treat to be a student somewhere and then later to teach there also. I think it's really, I feel very lucky. And then I, I got here, I applied for the job when I saw it open and um, have loved it. So I've been here for three years, as I said, and I'm freelancing in the area as well. And then I also I spend my summers uh, as principal horn of the Breckenridge Music Festival. So that's who I am and what I do. Can we back up to the very beginning and tell me about how you got started in music? Sure. So I actually started on piano when I was, I think, four. Uh, And it was just my whole family loved music. So we all were taking music lessons when we were little. Um, And so that's how I got started. And I loved it. And actually, if you asked anyone who knew me until I was about 18, they would probably say that I was a pianist and they wouldn't think of me as a horn player, which is kind of funny because that was my great love. And I also grew up singing in church choir and doing that kind of a thing. And then my older brother was in band and I like worshiped the ground he walked on. I wanted to be just like him. And so I wanted to do band and I ended up playing the French horn uh, for the very glamorous reason that the private lesson teacher was really cute and I had a crush on him. And so I signed up to play the horn and the rest just kind of worked out. Uh, and then I got to college and I knew that I, I had these three different paths of music I could choose, piano, horn or voice. And the horn teacher at UT Austin, Patrick Hughes, is just this incredible, kind, wonderful figure. Um, And I ended up starting in horn because it seemed like the one I was most prepared to audition for. And then just fell in love with the work that Pat was doing and stayed as a horn player. So I was not one of those people that picked up my instrument and knew that it was my career for the rest of my life. Um, It took me a long time to kind of convince myself. Um, And even then in college, I wasn't actually a performance major until my senior year. It took me a long time to kind of like tiptoe slowly into figuring out what I wanted to do. But yeah, so that's how I ended up on the horn. Can you tell me at what age did you start the horn? Twelve. Okay. And then when, when you said that you didn't become a performance major until your senior year, did that mean that you had to add a couple of extra years to your undergrad? Just one, just one. Yeah. So I was a bachelor of arts student at first and then a music ed major. 
And then fortunately, I had already been doing certain things like participating in chamber music and playing in the kinds of ensembles that would count towards my degree. So really in the end, it was just, I added, my last year felt almost more like, I guess, how a master's degree feels, where it was just lessons and ensembles and I think a music history class that I'd managed not to take before, instead of all of, you know, the, the upper division teaching sequence that music ed students do. But yeah, so it wasn't until my senior year, so I had an extra little victory lap. I have five years of an undergrad, the last two of them performance, I guess. Okay, great. Thank you for that. Now, can you talk a little bit about the transition from being a pianist into studying horn? Um, what kind of hurdles did you have to overcome or was that a fairly smooth transition? Sure. So studying piano beforehand, I think definitely gave me an advantage because I could already read music. I could already read treble and bass clef and the horn has to read both. And so when it came to seeing all the information on the page, that didn't alarm me in the slightest. Um, which I think is a big advantage having now taught a lot of beginners. It's a lot to learn an instrument and how to read music all at the same time. So I felt very lucky. What was different, the horn is not pitched in concert pitch. The horn that we play on today is in the key of F. So I would see like a, a written C on the page and my brain would tell me, well, that's not right. Because if I go play on the piano, it was not the same C. So kind of getting that in my ear and also getting used to the difference between you can do everything seemingly right, like put the fingers down for the right note and maybe the right note doesn't come out. Unlike piano, if you sit down and if you if you play a C, the C is going to happen. It may not sound exactly how you want it to sound, but there are other things to refine. But so that kind of accuracy element and learning to trust my ear in a different way. If you've ever spent any time in a band room, you'll hear band directors say to their brass students that they should be able to sing it in their head before they play it. And that kind of audiation is a huge part of brass playing, especially for young students. So that was, that was part of it, this kind of concept of accuracy in that way. And also the sound production element of it too. So if you'd like, I can take a few seconds to talk about how the horn works. So I have mine hanging out right here by my feet. Um, so like all brass instruments, we have a mouthpiece that we buzz into and you know, brass embouchures, this is a big mysterious thing, but it's actually pretty simple. You're gonna be blowing air through it and that allows the lips to vibrate. And it sounds a little bit like an angry mosquito is what I tell my students when they play. So if I put the mouthpiece up and I buzz through it, any note I play on the horn, I can play on the mouthpiece. The horn just amplifies it and turns it into a much more attractive sound, right? So hopefully the Zoom mics will, will cooperate. So uh, that's kind of the, the principle of how it works. The instrument itself is just an amplifier for what you're doing on the mouthpiece. Um, the big difference is though, you probably noticed that when I buzzed, I could kind of do this big swoopy gesture and hit everything. The same way that a trombonist can with their slide, they can make those big smeary things, right? The horn's a little bit different. Like the rest of the brass family, it is governed by the harmonic series, which means that on any given length of tubing, there are only certain notes we can play. So for example, if I have no valves down, um, and I wanted to do that same kind of gesture, the the horn has to turn it into specific pitches. It can't make that big bend kind of a siren. So you end up with only a few notes. Right. And I can do that same pattern on any set of fingers. And if I'm adding length to the horn, it will get lower. And whenever we add a finger, it's making the horn longer by redirecting the air through one of these elaborate looking loops. Yeah. Um, and that just transposes for us on the fly. Once upon a time, the horn didn't have valves. They, they hadn't quite figured that part of it out yet. And so horn players came up with some other cool tricks where we would put our right hand in the bell 
and manipulate it around. So just by moving my hand, if this is my natural position, let's say, I can bend it this way and lower the pitch, or I can raise the pitch so you can get something like. So as you can imagine, the horn was this kind of outlier compared to some other instruments. When you think back to Beethoven, even Brahms was a big advocate of the natural horn. Um, there was a lot of usage of what we call hand horn. So some of the most famous things that we think about would have had those kind of coloration pitches that were in there um, because that was the only way to get anything that was chromatic and not in the harmonic series. It's also why you, when you look at orchestral scores, you'll sometimes see four horns that are all in different keys to try and get access to all of the pitches that were needed for the harmonies in the orchestra, even though they could only play the ones in the harmonic series on that fundamental. Hopefully that makes sense. So in the early 20th century, late, late 19th century, geniuses started coming up with these vowels. So really the modern horn, as we think about it, is like 11 different horns put together, 11 different natural horns. We don't think about it that way very often when we're playing. I don't you know, pick up a horn in E part and just slap my second vowel down and go, go to town. But we can if we need to. It's a good pedagogical tool. We'll sometimes practice that way. And now modern horn players learn fingerings. And we learn the fingerings that are the most in tune and the most accurate and, and yield the most consistent sound. So um, it kind of bypasses some of the quirks of natural horn and embraces some of the best things about natural horn. Yeah. Great, thank you for that uh, overview and that introduction to French horn playing. I loved learning about that. And I, I had no idea that the hand inside the bell could change the pitch so much. So that was- Absolutely. A yeah, and that's a big thing with young students. If any of you teach young French horn players and intonation is a frustration for them, check in on their right hand position. It can, as you can tell, you can bend it a whole half step. And so sometimes the student just kind of gets like a little bit relaxed and their arm collapses over and then they mess up their intonation. So yeah, right hand position is huge on the horn. So there we go. Yeah. So let's talk about practicing for you as a child. You obviously must have practiced on the piano and you must have practiced on the French horn and maybe you practiced on the voice. So can you kind of break that down for us? How did you juggle all of those demands and what was practicing like for you as a child? Yeah, so I loved playing as a child. I don't think I loved practice. I don't think I really got it. because I was one of those annoying students that a lot of things came naturally early on. And so I just got used to being able to kind of do things. And so rather than sitting with that frustration, that moment when we all hit a, hit a window where we're like, I can't do this easily, I would just avoid it and get frustrated. And so I would sight read a lot. Um, my parents would insist, like, okay, well, your teacher says you have to practice for this long. But my parents, even though they love music, they're not musicians. And so they weren't entirely sure what practicing should look like either, right? So sometimes it literally would just be, I'd pick up a piano book. I know I had to practice for an hour. My mom would set a kitchen timer and I would read it like a book. Like I just sight read my way through it and flip to the next one and flip to the next one. And then I would have spent time on the piano for an hour. And so I could kind of check that box, but it wasn't really accomplishing a whole lot. The horn, it was a similar kind of a thing. I took private lessons um, and my teacher would say something like, you know, you should be playing 30 minutes or an hour a day. And so usually I would just like read through whatever I was working on and then just kind of sight read for a little bit until then or play something by ear maybe if I wanted to. I was a terrible practicer. So you can take this as like hope that maybe terrible practicers can turn out to be good practicers. But so that's honestly probably from when I was a little child all the way through my undergrad. That's more or less how I practiced. It was just like, well, I, I play through stuff. And if it didn't seem to come naturally, I would just decide it was not my lot in life to be able to play it. Um, and I'd avoid it and do something else. And then I got very frustrated because as you can imagine, you hit a window where there are just some things that like your natural abilities are not going to take you past it. And the things that you want, if you have big aspirations, you have to work your way through difficult things. 
And that's actually the reason I decided to go back for my doctorate is I knew that I had to face these like deep, dark secrets of my horn playing. If I really wanted to be able to do the things that I said I wanted to be able to do. And so I went back and my teacher more or less was just like, we're going to figure this out. And my first semester of my doctorate was her looking at what kind of naturally good things I was doing in my practice and then making me build in structured time to address those things that were not as good. And I know that sounds ridiculous that you can get all the way to a graduate degree and be a terrible practicer, but it's true. I was just really lucky that the kinds of things that I was being asked to do um, were things I could kind of wing it. And I think that there is something to be said for doing a bunch of sight reading and having those kinds of skills um, that has served me well, especially as a freelancer, where sometimes you don't know what you're gonna play until you show up and you flip the music over on your stand. But I, I just was not very patient. And so um, I loved to play. It was not an issue to get me to spend time on my instruments. It was an issue to get me to be productive in that time. So yeah, I think that the biggest takeaway that's given me as a teacher is that when we tell students to practice, they don't necessarily know what that means. We can't just assume that they have a network of people at home that know what that should look like. So with my students, sometimes I'll, I'll be very prescriptive and say, like, spend 10 minutes here, 15 minutes on this, or no more than five minutes on this, and that kind of a thing. Because as a horrible, innately terrible practicer, it was important to me to have structure as I got older. I wonder, as someone who must have, you know, these things must have come to you intuitively, did your teachers know that you were not practicing as well as you should have or were you able to kind of fool them uh a mix i think a mix so i didn't seriously study voice in a way that i ever had to have that conversation i like sang in a rock band and i sang in a choir you can like kind of hide you know and like those are areas where you can just kind of do your thing my piano teacher definitely would figure it out and he would get really frustrated and make me practice with him in my lessons and I just thought that's how piano lessons went. I didn't realize that there were other options. You know, so like to me, that was just how it went. But, you know, I think that, that that was the thing. My college horn professor, Patrick Hughes, one day just looked me in the face and he goes, you know, you're going to be stuck here until you take the time to figure it out. And he just said it that candidly to me. And then it was just a matter of me being brave enough to figure it out because I had done this incredible job of sidestepping like the amount of effort I spent sidestepping my weaknesses on the horn rather than actually working my way through them it was such a waste of energy but to the point that I was commissioning pieces from composers and just like asking them to avoid certain things that I didn't like to do and they would write lovely pieces of music um but so you know it's it's amazing if I had spent the creative energy on working through those problems that I spent on avoiding them I often wonder what would have happened but yeah my teachers definitely figured it out for all of them, it took a little bit of time. And I think that's true for all of us. Like we make, you know, we can be dazzled by a student that seems to naturally do things. And then all of a sudden there comes a moment where you're like, I don't understand why this isn't clicking, right? And so then they'd ask me if I practiced and I'd say yes. And then it became, well, how did you practice? And then when you have that kind of look of, that's when you know that it was not right. So yes, they were just very patient and willing to put up with me. Um, I'm not sure why, but they were lovely humans. Got it. Uh, you touched briefly on this about your family's relationship with music. You hinted that your siblings or uh, people in your family made music together. Can you break that down for us? Absolutely. Um, so my mom's side of the family in particular, everyone is very musical, though they're not professional musicians. I just have one cousin that's a singer. Um, and then the rest of us love music deeply. So my grandmother, who like grew up in this Italian family off in the mountains somewhere. She loved music, it was very important to her. All four of her children took piano lessons and grew up thinking that music was very important and passed that on to their children. And so, you know, as an Italian family, we were very close. We spent a lot of holidays together and birthdays and things. So I have a lot of memories as a child of being at my grandmother's house 
and there being almost constantly some form of live music, my aunt at a piano or one of us playing. So there were nine grandchildren, eight of us played instruments. All of us would get recruited into singing. It usually wasn't classical music. It was usually like Dean Martin tunes or you know, things like that. But there was constantly music happening in the house. And then at home, my older brother, as I said, he, he was in band. He played trombone. And my parents both love music dearly. So there was a lot of music happening all the time, preferably live. I mean, my parents really encouraged that and, and prioritized it. So yeah, we were a very musical family and a lot of different genres and styles. So I think that that actually has been something that was really important to me also growing up and not just being in the lane of only classical music or only piano music or, you know, only horn music. Um, having like a big variety of things that were in my musical vocabulary has been incredibly helpful. Plus just this idea of family time or celebrating involving making music with someone that that kind of lends a special flavor to performing. So yeah, it's always been kind of a part of my life. Has that continued into adulthood? Like now that all the grandkids are grown, do you guys get together for Thanksgiving or Christmas and you gather around and sing together? Yep, absolutely. So my my grandmother lived to be 101 and up to the end of her life, every time we were there, it was just understood that everyone was bringing her instrument, even if they weren't. So I have cousins that are geologists, but still kind of play the violin, you know, like that kind of a thing. And we would all go. It was a lot of us just kind of like picking tunes out by ear, maybe like the week before one of my cousins would email and be like, okay, here's this song and let's all try and figure something out. And then at her funeral, we all played, we did an arrangement of Going Home, um, which is the, the slow movement of Dvorak 9. And we did this huge arrangement of it that was, because um, she loved music so much. Now we aren't able, we're all you know, spread out all over creation. So we don't all get to do that together as much, but I do think very much that when we are together in small groups, that's still a very important thing for all of us. And so it's very common that if some of my cousins and I are together, one of us will sit down at the piano and we'll like start singing. Even if it's just, it pops up in conversation. Like, oh, I heard this song and he'll let me play it for you. Even though we now obviously could pull up our phones and play it. It's just ingrained in us to do that, um, which is kind of fun. It's, it's interesting and it's different. My family always sings Christmas carols together for fun, you know, that kind of a deal. So we're, we're that kind of nerdy, wonderful music family, I think. So I love that. Do you show up to each other's weddings and play for each other's weddings? Is that a thing? Yeah, actually, absolutely. I have played or sang in every single one of my cousin's weddings, except for one. It was like the venue didn't really work for that. Um, But yeah, we're all very much involved in performing and playing together. And one of my cousins, his son, wanted to take horn lessons in high school. And so we had a whole conversation about that and impromptu lessons. And yeah, it's still very much a part of who we are. I love that. What a beautiful picture. I think you've started touching on this, but I'm going to ask this question anyway. What are some challenges you have encountered as a musician? Sure. So the first big and obvious one in my own musical learning was figuring out practicing and and being brave enough to walk through the things I wasn't naturally good at. Right. I think that that it was an issue of courage for me. When you're naturally good at something and it's reinforced to you early on, that through a positive thing like oh that sounds beautiful it sounds wonderful that becomes how you identify with doing it and in the moment it doesn't go well it can be really scary right um and so I think that that was the thing my identity was well I do music and so when suddenly when music wasn't going well what did that mean for me sort of a deal um so that I think is definitely one of them and then as I got through that kind of a hurdle there are all these other things kind of embedded in our field you know the choice to go to summer festivals or to have a summer job Right. And kind of some of these sorts of things that have been challenging. So I didn't do a lot of summer festivals when I was in college. I was always working two or three jobs. So, you know, I was paying bills and doing stuff like that and and watching my colleagues go off to Aspen and Tanglewood and all of these big name things and make connections and network. And that was 
challenging for me in a way to, to understand that everyone's experience is different and that you can still have a really meaningful career even if you don't do some of these things that seem like the boxes you're supposed to check on paper. And then another is staying hopeful, I think, in times of musical drought. I think the last two years, we've all kind of felt that way as everything shut down. But even as a student, I think about that with auditions that I took and I didn't get the job that I wanted or when I was not you know, able to play repertoire that I loved, that the idea of staying hopeful, I think, was a challenge for me for a long time. And I really do think that as technology has allowed us to do things um, and you can listen to music in a different way and make music with people who are far away, that has been really helpful for me in those kinds of things. And it's something I, I think all of us certainly have been dealing with for the last couple of years, so. What would you say is the balance between talent and work ethic when it comes to determining success in a student? I think it's all about work ethic. I think that maybe talent helps you to enjoy it early on. Um, that's maybe the one advantage that it gives you, right? Is that you see immediate success um, or you get that positive feedback. But at the end of the day, if you're not putting in the work to get it done, you're, you're gonna hit your own personal glass ceiling of how far you can go. And I think it's incredible as a teacher I love it when my students come in and they just are hungry to learn and it very seldom matters how they were ranked at the beginning of their freshman year. When you look at them at the end of their senior year, the world is their, their oyster. They can kind of do whatever they want. And I think that hard work and deliberate work, not the kind of practicing I did where you just spend an hour playing your instrument, but uh, practicing with a plan uh, and being courageous, I think that makes all the difference. Mm. Do you have any musical or pedagogical projects you are currently working on? Yeah, so um, this the pedagogical one is new. So mindfulness in music is a research passion of mine. And I just had this idea a couple months ago and I'm working on it where I want to have a tool that the musicians can use to help cultivate this in their own practice and to assess their own mindfulness. So I found at a bookstore this really cool deck of cards that are rooted in cognitive behavioral therapy, which is also very closely related to mindfulness. Um, and each day it's just a little prompt and it's not a journal and it's not a book. It's like a tool you can use kind of how it feels right for you. And I think that's really exciting. So I'm working on trying to figure out what would be the right kinds of prompts and or ways that, that my uh, work with mindfulness could translate into that so that musicians in their daily practice can have another tool, even if they don't have time to read a book or the patients to sit down and journal, just like something that they can use and take with them that's portable. So I'm working on developing that right now. I'm excited about that. I think it should be really fun. And then musically, I have a few commissions in the work with some composers. Um, and I'm hoping to record them next summer, hopefully. Uh, so one for horn and mixed percussion ensemble uh, and one for horn and like wind octet. So I'm pretty excited about those projects too. Going back up to the mindfulness, you said it was a deck of cards? Yeah, so it's, I purely stumbled on this at a bookstore. Someone else had done this with, um, it was designed to be a tool for therapy, sort of like applying to yourself tools from therapeutic practices in cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, and I bought it because I was like, well, I'm intrigued. And so basically the cards were organized, like if you think about a normal deck of cards that is organized into suits, instead of suits, it was like concepts, right? And so within each concept, there were like 13 little prompts that would give you just something to think about. And sometimes it was as simple as reframing a challenge or like a, an observation to challenge yourself with during the day. Like every, once every hour, get up and take a walk and then, you know, notice something. And it was just things like that. But that particular deck was based in cognitive behavioral therapy. And they, it turns out that they have them for all sorts of different forms of therapeutic things, but I think there's a lot of potential there for mindfulness applications um, for musicians, which is something I'm really passionate about. So that might look like 
a set of meditations or a set of like prompts to get you thinking about how to reframe your day, your frustrations and practice. And I mean, I could rant about this for like a long time, but um, there's a lot of really interesting research that mindfulness is actually like several different facets of habits of thinking. Um, so one of them is acting with awareness. And I think that musicians, if we look back to practice, often we don't practice with awareness. So I'm imagining a thing where like in the sections about acting with awareness, it's simple prompts about notice this about your practice today, or take a second and notice your heartbeat. And can you play a scale in the same tempo as your heartbeat? And to try and like turn things in inward in a different way and harness what mindfulness can do for a musicianship without it being a formal course or a big book purchase or something. It's like something little you can do every day that can help you on your path towards that habit of thinking. That's kind of what I'm thinking. Do you have any books about music or teaching that you can recommend? Absolutely. So every spring I do a book club with my studio. And um, so there are two that we have done that we absolutely loved that I'll pass on. So one is Atomic Habits by James Clear. It's not overtly about music, but all of his thinking about building habits relates so much into our success as musicians and the way we structure our lives. Um, so we found it immensely helpful. My studio loved it. We're currently reading one called Talent is Overrated that talks a lot about deliberate practice. And that one is, is also really, really wonderful. In a more uh, specific musical con context, there's a book by Fergus McWilliams, who was the second horn of the Berlin Philharmonic for a long time. Uh, and he wrote a book called Blow Your Own Horn. And it's basically just him talking about like how he figured out for himself certain things and when he allowed himself to reject certain things that teachers had told him because it didn't work for him anymore and how he worked that through with his own students. So it's a little bit horn nerdy, but it's also, I think, really interesting. And it's a short read. It's like 100 pages. So all three of those, I think, are great. So I'm fascinated by the idea of a book club with your students. How do you structure that? So we do it in the spring um, and I tell them at the end of the semester what book they need to buy so they can read it over the winter break if they'd like or they can kind of pace it up themselves. But I build it into my syllabus and so four times during the semester in our studio class we have a discussion um, and I break it up. So I usually do the first chunk to kind of model for them how I would like that to go. And I have certain concepts that I want to talk about and I ask them questions, you know, how did you feel about this statement, that sort of thing. And then I kind of arbitrarily divide them up so into chunks. And so I try to do, you know, like a freshman and an upperclassman and a grad student or something and like put them in a pair, mm. like a little cluster. And they'll cover three or so chapters depending on the length of the book. And then I don't really tell them what to do with it. So sometimes they as a group go and get coffee and they decide what they want to do. And then sometimes it's just the individuals who have specific things they want to do. And then we just kind of moderate a discussion and I'll hop in if it seems like someone is being particularly shy or, you know, or if it seems like we're going in a direction that makes someone uncomfortable, I might redirect it, stuff like that. But I really let them take the reins of it. And I was really surprised at how much they loved it. It's become kind of one of the things they asked me in August, what book are we, they were already ready to go, which is kind of fun. But yeah, so we do, we just kind of take some time. I'm lucky at CSU that I have really long studio classes and I see my students twice a week as a cohort because we have horn ensemble on Tuesdays and studio class on Fridays. So I can afford to give up a studio class time for something like that which is nice, but I think even if I didn't have twice a week with them, I would still do it. It's been really cool because it lets me see how they're thinking about life away from music and then helps us to connect it back to music. And I can't recommend it enough. It's been such a, such a joy to do that with them. Yeah, I really like this idea. I think I'm gonna steal it and try it out with my students. Yeah, go for it, yeah. What aspects of your life and career as a musician has surprised you? How does it measure up to the life you envisioned for yourself as a young musician? Yeah, um, I think the biggest thing that has surprised me is how many different places I have moved. 
I know that some people grew up in families that moved all over. Mine did not. My whole family lived in Texas and still does. I'm the only person in my family who's not in Texas. So I think I didn't really understand those kinds of opportunities. And that's both, you know, a challenge and exciting at the same time. So that's definitely the first one that to follow some of the opportunities that I wanted to have, I might have to be willing to pick up and move and live in a different place. So that was probably the first one that surprised me. And then how small the musical world is. Um, I feel like almost every time I show up at a gig, I recognize somebody or I know somebody through somebody else, which is wild. And I know the older that we get, the, the smaller that world becomes, which is really cool. I mean, our teachers used to say that to us all the time in college. Um, and I think we all just kind of didn't believe them. And then now I very much believe them. The music world really is tiny, but it is very different. And in some ways, so much more exciting than I could have imagined. You know, I try to remind myself that my version of what it meant to be a professional musician was rooted not in a family full of musicians and not in a city with a huge major orchestra. I mean, there's the Austin Symphony, but it's not of the caliber and this busyness of like, you know, New York Phil or Boston or one of those. So I didn't really know what being a professional musician could look like, except for my piano teacher. He was the only professional musician or my band director. And so it's looked wildly different. And some of the opportunities I've had, I couldn't have predicted in a million years. And that's really exciting. The fact that this career can still surprise me while I'm doing the things I knew I wanted to do, I think has been really great. But it's very different than what I envisioned when I was younger. Great. If you had a chance to redo your life and career choices, what would you change or not change about them? Yeah. So I think that I would try to be more patient with myself to do slow practice and to to do the slow work. I was a student that when I saw an opportunity, I said yes to everything all the time. And so I was spread very, very thin. And I actually think I would still say yes to everything. I mean, I was the horn player that played on everybody's recitals and chamber recitals and things. And I got to play a huge amount of music when I was very young, just because I always said yes. And I was always around the music building. And that was great. But I think that it would have been better if I had paired that with more diligent listening habits and the patience to practice slowly instead of seeing a mountain of rep and thinking I just had to read through it at tempo as quickly as possible and get it under my fingers. Because it definitely meant that there were times I would loop back to something and the mistakes I made in my first performance might crop up in my second, you know, that kind of thing. You live with your bad habits for a long time. So it's better to just kind of work slowly at them and to give yourself permission to like let a performance as you're doing it that day to enjoy it. That represents who you are as a performer that day. It doesn't mean it has to be perfect and it doesn't mean that it can't get better. I don't know if, if you've ever felt that way, but I put a lot of pressure on myself as a young musician to be like, well, this is my chance to play, I don't know, the Rite of Spring. It has to be perfect. And I, when it wasn't perfect, it felt devastating instead of being like, this is a really good representation of where I am right now. And the next time I play it, I know exactly what I want to change. And so I think kind of having that, that giving yourself permission for that. And not basing decisions from a place of fear. There were a lot of opportunities that I said no to because I was scared of what that meant. Like, I, again, I couldn't really picture what a professional musician's life looked like. Um, I only knew what I kind of see my family do. And for a long time when things didn't seem to match in that, like, oh, I have to leave Texas for that. Or, oh, I have to do this other thing. And I, I was scared of it. So I would say, no, you can do, survive anything for a summer or for a year, just about. So I think if I could go back, I would take the opportunities to do some of those like one year study abroad things or one year this or that. One year in the grand scheme of your life will go by so fast. So that would be it. Great. This is our very last question. What advice would you give to a young pre-collegiate musician about a life with music? Absolutely. So the first one, I will admit, I was, I'm stealing from a friend of mine who is a studio musician in LA. And he told me that he listens to something new every day 
not something he's working on, just something new. And that with all of our resources now, we have so many options. So some days it's a piece of classical music, some days it's, you know, I don't know, Steely Dan or Led Zeppelin or whatever, but he's finds something new he hasn't heard before, even if it's just one song and he listens to it. And I think that's actually really wonderful. I started doing that and it's amazing how much that lights up the creativity in my brain um, and kind of opens up new things. And I think that it can be really daunting when you're young to feel like there's so much music you should know that it feels a little bit paralyzing sometimes. So just chip away at it slowly. You can probably make five minutes, listen to a movement of something, even if you don't have time for the whole symphony that day. So listen to something new every day. Be curious. I feel like the most powerful times of growth in my life were when I was just curious enough to ask a question of someone instead of just assuming that I should know what they meant when they said a thing. So be bold, be curious. And then most importantly, be kind. As I said, the music world is very small. Be kind to yourself and be kind to your colleagues, right? It, it will make the experience so much more enjoyable in general. Well, Anne-Marie, it has been a delight to meet you and to hear your story and to talk with you. And thank you so much for that overview lesson on French horn. I certainly learned a lot. On behalf of other Georgia musicians, welcome to the state of Georgia. We are so glad that you are here. And thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to talk with me and share with our listeners. I wish you happy teaching and happy students. <laughs>